When was the last time you hopped on the interstate? Probably not too long ago. You might even be on it now. That convenience is due to the Federal Highway Act of 1956. The most talked about phase of the act is the interstate highway system, a 41,000 mile network of our most important roads. Most of these roads will be four, six, even eight lane expressways constructed for through traffic. They will take the over the road driver from city to city, coast to coast at highway speeds even through large population centers. Those large population centers used to be neighborhoods and businesses. Through cities like Buffalo, New York, and Atlanta, Georgia, and all across the country, 41,000 miles of the interstate highway system and all the pavement and on-ramps that came with it were once home to thriving communities. My great-grandparents lived in a house and then that house was picked for demolition and then they were pushed into public housing right across the street and the lot that their house used to be on is now a parking lot, you know? Homes like these that were chosen to be obliterated to make way for the interstate highways weren't chosen by accident. It was part of a planned destruction that targeted mostly black neighborhoods. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the afterlife of redlining. Jackson Ward is a neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia, once known as the Harlem of the South and the Black Wall Street. But starting in the 1950s, it was torn down to make way for Interstate 95. Latoya S. Gray is a graduate student at Virginia Commonwealth University in the Doug Wilder School of Urban Planning. She says the destruction of Jackson Ward was a planned destruction, and she's taken to old phone books to recreate the map of Jackson Ward as it once was, a thriving, rooted Black community that's since been pushed out by rising prices and city planning. LaToya, you created a map of a vibrant African-American community in Richmond, Virginia, before it was destroyed. Tell me about this place called Jackson Ward and what it was like in its former glory. Yeah. So Jackson Ward is in Richmond, Virginia, um, near what we consider to be today the downtown area. And it was the home to hundreds, if not thousands, of former slaves settled within the city. And so they built beautiful homes, they started businesses, and it became what people would call the Harlem of the South. It was a thriving and a resilient and self-sustaining community. That's so interesting. They've called it the Harlem of the South, Richmond's Black Wall Street. What did you notice about the kinds of businesses and fun things to do within walking distance of these homes that people had there? Yeah, so... I love that it was essentially a walkable community, um, and that is something that urban planners are trying to recreate, just having more centralized nodes where everything is in walking distance, like from a grocery store to, say, a doctor's office, church. Like, there is now a movement to recreate that and make it so that people are, like, 10 minutes away from, you know, amenities and services that they need. So, essentially, that is what was created in Jackson Ward. So, you had um, a number of doctors and nurses and people who sewed clothes, um, gosh, carpenters. There were several grocery markets within that space. So just anything that you could think of that you would need as a community, like they were able to create that in that space. And again, because they were constrained by geography. So After Jackson Ward was nearly leveled by urban renewal and a giant highway, it became a food desert. And yet it wasn't anything close to a food desert in its heyday. Correct. And um, I think that is something that I learn more about as I map people and places displaced by urban renewal. Because um, yes, um, we talk about certain areas in the city being food deserts. I mean, there are no grocery stores nearby in the area um, in a convenient location. But in my map, I discovered there were like I want to say 20 to 30 
little markets within that area. So I thought that that was pretty fascinating and something that I was not aware of until doing my research. What happened to Jackson Ward and when did it happen? There were a lot of urban plans being created across the country, I guess, towards the end of the 1930s and then through the 1940s. So let's see, Harlan Bartholomew was an engineer, and now he's known as an urban planner, but he um, was hired by the city of Richmond in the 1930s to start um, mapping the city and pretty much also to figure out where blighted properties were. Um, A lot of people were concerned about um, how unsanitary downtown areas were becoming as well as crowded, but then there was also um, the construction of highways starting to be um, planned and built. And then later on, there would be a comprehensive plan for the city created and adopted in 1946. And that in many ways set the groundwork and the framework for what we know as urban renewal um, here in Richmond. Harlan Bartholomew was actually kind of nationally renowned in his field. He had done this kind of mapping for St. Louis and Louisville and Memphis, and each time he identified the Black neighborhoods as the ones he called blighted and disheveled. Yes, he did. Um, I don't even know where to start with that, but yes, he was very much responsible for urban plans that were created throughout the country. So he helped to set the framework or create the framework of cities that we know today. And the cities that you just mentioned, St. Louis and Memphis and Louisville, like a lot of those locations have been recently areas where there's been a lot of social unrest um, related to, you know, policing and other issues, poverty, lack of affordable housing. And a lot of that I believe, can be traced back to plans that Harlan Bartholomew created starting in the 1930s. Was he doing it deliberately? Was he talking with others about, we need to separate Black and white neighborhoods, Black and white communities? Yeah. So when reading, like, his comments in Richmond, like, about Black communities and neighborhoods, he wasn't blatant, like, as far as, like, being a racist. But if you look at stuff that he said, like in Louisville, Kentucky, like he was talking about the Negro problem in downtown Louisville. And the Negro problem was that there were too many black people living in a space and they needed to essentially be cleared out. So while he didn't Mm. use that awful language in Richmond, um, there are accounts that I've come across in which he's said some not very flattering things about black people. I do recall reading something about how he felt like, you know, the races needed to be separated because segregation was something that that was the reality of that time. So he's a product of that time, but I think he also associated Black spaces as being blighted and not valuable and therefore ripe for destruction and demolition and and being renewed. And what had he said or done in terms of setting the stage for the ultimate destruction in Richmond of Jackson Ward? Well, if you look at the maps that his firm created, and there are many of them um, starting from the 1930s to the 1940s, he targeted specifically where Black people lived. Um, He didn't necessarily map where white people live. I guess it was just assumed that They lived anywhere else besides where Black people lived. But I think that his concentration and targeting of Black communities kind of went hand in hand also with the redlining maps that banks and lenders use to determine the value of property. So I think that he helped in many ways, like in creating those maps, he kind of set or created a framework that made it easier for those creating redlining maps to say, oh, yeah. This is where Black people live. This is a neighborhood that is in decline or is, you know, just not of any value. So his urban plans along um, in conjunction with the redlining maps, you know, kind of mark the spots that were just undervalued and could be targeted for urban renewal. And when did urban renewal come then? I would say... Around the 1950s through the 1960s, um, the map that I created of 
like 1,500 people and places displaced from the downtown area. That was based on a directory from 1956. So if you looked at like a directory from the following year in 1957, you can notice that there are certain streets that no longer exist or are no longer listed because they'd been selected for demolition and the construction of the highways. So how did Richmond set about leveling a lot of Jackson Ward. What was the impetus? The impetus was um, a desire to create an expressway through the downtown Richmond area. And so the expressway would be I-95, which is, you know, a major highway that runs through the city now. And those living in Jackson Ward were unfortunately in the way of that expressway, of that highway. So essentially the highway that we have today um, runs through what used to be Jackson Ward in the downtown Richmond area. How many homes and businesses would you estimate were lost just to make way for that giant expressway? I would estimate at least I've mapped like 1,500 locations of homes and businesses that no longer exist. What remains on either side of that of Jackson Ward? So on the south side of the expressway is what would be considered historic Jackson Ward. It is attracting more of an affluent class of people. So so there's something going on there, and it's exciting, but also can be very um, concerning for those who've lived in the area for quite some time. And then to the north of the highway, on the other side of Jackson Ward, is what would be called the Gilpin District, and that is where public housing exists. So Gilpin Court, I believe like the largest public housing community in the city is on that side of the highway. Um, The last time I checked, the median income is around $10,000 for households. Um, It's Mm. a predominantly black community, but also there's a lot of concentrated poverty and isolation and lack of access to opportunities. And that's the part of Jackson Ward now that's considered a food desert? Yes. I mean, just it's a stark difference. Like on one side of the bridge, there are markets that you can walk to and all kinds of places to eat. But just like right across in the Gilpin district, there is one corner market and that is it. And there's just not a lot of access to services and amenities that many of us enjoy in our neighborhoods and communities today. You have a personal connection to a different highway in Richmond that displaced your own family. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, it is actually a part of um, the I-95 highway. It was um, a thriving community in the city of Richmond, just in the West End um, for Black families, but it was also one of the areas that was targeted by redlining. So my great-grandparents had a home on Idlewood Avenue, and that home was, was considered to be blighted and then demolished, and then they were pushed into public housing, like right across the street from where their house used to be. And today that lot is an empty lot. Like right across from that empty lot is the expressway. So it is a clear reminder of, you know, just what used to be and now what is there now in lieu of homes and other other places that were very significant to that community. What was lost by the family between the home your grandparents lived in that was leveled and having to move into public housing? Mosby Court, right? Yes, yes. And I and I think that it is that's an example of like this generational theft that has occurred. Um, and just within my own family. So like my great grandparents were pushed into public housing, which meant that they had no way of creating equity, you know, just to pass on to future generations. And then you fast forward four generations later, and a cousin of mine whom I was really close to died in Wickham Court, which is another public housing community in the east end of Richmond. I can't help but think of, like, if things would have been different had, like, my great-grandparents not been displaced and, you know, had their lives and their community disrupted. Did you ever hear any of your older family members talk about that? No, um, not until my map was published and started getting attention. 
I had no idea about my great-grandparents living in a house until a year ago um, after my uncle saw a story about me featured in our local paper. And then he showed me this video of the house that he grew up in that my great-grandparents once had. So all along, I thought that my great-grandparents lived in public housing. And for whatever reason, you know, that was just what, that's just how things were. But I just, I never, I didn't know about like what they had before and, and what was lost. What can we do as cities, as governments, as individuals to make sure this kind of planned destruction doesn't happen again? Yeah, so I guess the big takeaway for me was just learning how like urban plan urban plans matter and like it if you can pay attention to the processes and do your best just to um, stay aware of what's going on, I think that's a first step. You never know what kind of difference you can make. LaToya Gray, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you as well. LaToya Gray is a graduate student at Virginia Commonwealth University in the Douglas Wilder School of Urban Planning. She won an Environmental Rating Scale prize for her digital map called Plan Destruction, a brief history on land ownership, valuation, and development in the city of Richmond and the maps used to destroy Black communities. All summer, ambulances push through traffic, rushing to people having heat-related emergencies. In Richmond, those ambulances are almost always going to the same side of town, the neighborhoods where it can be up to 16 degrees hotter than the neighborhood just up the street. Jeremy Hoffman is the chief scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia in Richmond. He says the excessive heat is one of the enduring legacies of redlining. Jeremy, we've seen communities with the most poverty in cities are often surrounded by hot pavement in the summer, not many trees. But you startle me when you say they were actually locked into these high heat areas by law. Right. So we were doing these community-driven heat campaigns where we were kind of going out and measuring the city's temperature during a heat wave, which is basically like taking someone's temperature when they have a fever. And what we discovered was in all of the cities that we were going and doing this, from Richmond to Washington, D.C., to Baltimore, Maryland, and dozens of cities afterwards, was it's the same communities that we keep seeing in the hottest places, predominantly communities of color, minoritized populations. And we were the first group to really start thinking about why that is. (laughs) And I know that seems like a really simple thing to ask, but really until the University of Richmond's Spatial Analysis and Digital Scholarship Lab published the redlining maps from the 1930s and 1940s, were we able to start really looking at this through a historical lens. So when we think about redlining, you know, the practice that went on in the 1930s and 40s, government assessors basically walked around neighborhoods and gave them ratings. And communities of color and immigrants were given lower ratings for their neighborhoods. But also we know from their uh, descriptions what the neighborhood looked like at that time. The redlined areas tended to be described as, you know, very paved over, manufacturing odors. Uh, Even the word hot is used to describe these neighborhoods. Whereas the formerly green-lined areas, uh, those areas that were predominantly wealthy and white communities at the time and remain that way today, were described as shady and rolling and wooded. So even at that time, almost 100 years ago, these neighborhoods probably had that environmental iniquity already baked into them. What do you mean? How did redlining deny them? It, it prevented them from moving out or it prevented them from moving in? Yeah, and kind of in both directions. People that were currently living in those redlined areas were denied access to the ability to get new mortgages on some property somewhere else. So 
in many ways, it locked these neighborhoods into their existing condition at that time. And then over the next several decades, we had even other nefarious kinds of planning projects, things like the interstate highway system. Basically, these redlining maps showed them where to put the highways, where the redlined communities were the ones that were then moved out, displaced, and bulldozed over to create room for cars. How bad are the heat deserts in these urban areas? Depending on the city, we've seen as much as 20 degrees Fahrenheit difference between the coolest and warmest place at the exact same time on the same day. So in many ways, these people are living in entirely different climate zones. Uh, it, you know, it, the, the weather in one part of the city on these heat wave days can be fundamentally different. The heat is just so different between one neighborhood and another, uh, depending on the city. You did an experiment in 2017 where you and an army of volunteers on a super hot day measured temperatures in various parts of Richmond where you live. What did you find? Yeah, so we were really fortunate to recruit a bunch of volunteers from community organizations and students from the local universities and from our city's sustainability office. And we just hung glorified thermometers outside of our cars and on our bikes. We rode around for a few hours throughout a heat wave day uh, here in the city of Richmond. It was one of those days that it feels like you're walking around outside in someone else's mouth, like yeah. a combination <laughs> of heat and humidity. Um, yeah. And so what did we find? At 3 p.m., at the heat of the day, there was about a 16-degree Fahrenheit difference between the coolest and warmest place at the exact same time. What was the hottest? The, the hottest was about 103 degrees Fahrenheit, and, and the coolest was about 87 degrees Fahrenheit. And allow me to say, this is not dry heat. No, this is humid, sticky feels like someone's spraying you in all directions with, you know, a hairdryer kind of conditions, you know. Very unpleasant. And so the places that we found were the hottest had the widest streets, the shortest buildings, and the fewest trees. So when you think about each one of those variables, there's some surprising things in there as well. Downtown, where most people would think would be the hottest, actually in the afternoon, because of the height of the buildings, it casts shadows on the ground level where people are walking around. So actually in downtown, we get kind of natural air conditioning from the shade that the buildings are casting on the places that we're walking around. Densely canopied, very shady types of parks that we have in the city of Richmond were some of the coolest areas at the same time. So it, it's really fascinating when you start to think about all the different types of neighborhood designs that can either amplify or dampen this extreme heat wave that goes on during the summer. Describe a couple of the neighborhoods that you've seen where you just saw how bad the heat was during the hottest part of the summer. Well, I think, I think people have this innate ability to understand this phenomenon. You know, when you get out of your car or you get off the bus in, in the middle of a big paved over parking lot, what's the first thing that you're looking for? You're looking for shade. You're looking for the space to go walk and feel more comfortable. So then when you think about some of the neighborhoods that uh, have some of the lowest canopies, Manchester, which is just on the south side of Richmond, not only are there so few trees, but the ones that are there are physically shorter than the ones just a few miles away in one of the formerly green-lined parts of town. So these have extremely wide streets, which are meant to move cars faster than people. You can't find a shady spot, uh, no open and, and welcoming types of green spaces. Um, anywhere you can think of with really wide streets that are uncomfortable for walking around in and very limited amounts of shade, noisy, also have problems with flooding after it rains. These are the kinds of uh, uh, characteristics of these neighborhoods that we see uh, time and time again in these formerly redlined communities versus the on the just the opposite side of town where you've got densely shaded, lush, green, open spaces, most of the time more narrow streets, more calm traffic, and all those things, you know, when you really think about it, 
the effect on your stress levels would be just so fundamentally different. And then when you think about what that means long-term for these people that grow up and live in these neighborhoods uh, and the difference that we know happens in their long-term health outcomes. You also discovered that ambulances are more likely to respond to heat stroke emergencies in these poor areas that are the hottest. Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly, the areas that are the hottest tend to have the highest rates of ambulance responses. But that only tells part of the story. It's really when you pull apart the populations that are being responded to by the ambulance that the story becomes really clearly one of environmental justice. The rate of responses for the ambulance for black individuals is about 62% of the cases in the ambulance data. But Black individuals only make up around half of the population in Richmond. So this disproportionate burden clearly identifies this heat island effect and its impacts on our health as a clear environmental justice issue. What can we do about all this? How can we make things better? There are several things that we can do, and there's never going to be that one silver bullet and it's really going to be more of a silver buckshot approach. You know, we need to spread out our solutions, little 1% solutions that'll add up to the 100% uh, through time. The best and clearest example of something that's long-term and something that requires a large level of investment would be expanding our tree canopy through something that's known as tree equity emphasizing planting and maintenance in the areas that need it the most and which stand to gain a lot from the financial benefits of having an increased tree canopy in their cities. People tend to think about trees as the main and probably one of the only types of things that we can do uh, to, to lessen this exposure to extreme heat in our cities. But there's actually a bunch of other things that we can be doing simultaneously. Simply adding shade structures across all of our you know, bus stops and things like that. Then there are things like changing the color of rooftops, investing in green roof kinds of things, green walls. Really, it's about expanding the greenness of our city. The tall buildings creating these shade canyons that create natural air conditioning. We could also be thinking about as our city continues to grow and we invite more new neighbors into our neighborhoods, how are we building housing to mitigate amplification of heat? You know, how do we position a building just right so that it shades a public thoroughfare in the middle of the afternoon, but doesn't take away from the ability for someone to say, grow their own food or have a really nice native plant garden at the same time? It really takes all of these things going on at once to really make effective change. And I will say that if we're making decisions about where to do these interventions without the input and vision and voice of the community that we're seeking to serve with these investments, then we're just we're, we're, we're not any better than the redlining maps back in the 1930s and 40s. So, you know, I truly think that it's centering and amplifying the voice and vision of these communities in the plans for these interventions is how we're really going to achieve meaningful, long-lasting climate resilience and justice. Jeremy Hoffman is the chief scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. From Virginia Humanities, I'm Sarah McConnell. How far do you have to travel to get to a park? Not just a plot of land but a true park with amenities and shade and fun things to do. Dorothy Ebus is a professor of environmental science and policy at William & Mary and the director of William & Mary's Parks Research Lab. She says American parks are devalued and we have to revitalize them. Dorothy, from a very young age, you realize that in America, we have so much land, we have fallow areas, but so few green spaces compared to, let's say, Europe. How did you notice that from a very young age? Yeah, so as a very young child, I lived in the Netherlands with my parents and my five older siblings. 
And we lived near the city of Nijmegen. And this is where my father was born and raised. And I have this very vivid memory of myself on the back of my mother's bicycle, biking to the grocery store, of course, with um, six children. This was a regular occurrence. And I remember just the feeling of freedom and of joy and the wind in my hair and seeing the plants and the trees and the gardens on all sides of us as we biked across these very smooth, dedicated bike paths. I remember my mom waving at acquaintances along the way. You know, the town was just full of nature and bikers and smiley faces. Um, The town was really built for people. Um, But I didn't realize how unusual that was until we moved to the United States when I was four. And again, I found myself regularly on the back of my mother's bicycle on the way to the grocery store. But the experience in the U.S. was completely different. Um, The city was designed primarily for cars, not for people. And truly, it felt more like a battle than a bike ride. And I remember being very scared and extremely confused as a four-year-old. Americans surely want this. We, we appreciate greenery and walkability and bikeability and safety, right? I think we do. And I think that's a really important point because I believe that a lot of people think Americans don't want that, that Americans want big highways and they want to be on cars whizzing by. But in my experience, often they don't know what they're missing. They haven't experienced it. And when they have they have a completely aha moment. You know, people who have traveled to these um, other countries or cities in the U.S. where they are doing a really great job of creating beautiful green landscapes and safe, accessible, equitable modes of transportation um, and cities and towns that are scaled for human beings and not cars. And I have seen countless green spaces in the U.S. that are I would say, underperforming in their potential to be real amenities Mm -hmm. for those spaces. So you may see a perfectly nice playground that's rarely used because there's no shade on hot summer days. Or you may say uh, green spaces that look really lovely from a moving car but are not functional for users or that feel unsafe or unwelcoming for certain groups. You know, hopefully you will see places that are being well used and loved by a diversity of people. Uh, movies in the park, playgrounds for children, skate parks for teens, you know, walking trails with benches for the elderly, basketball hoops, picnic tables, because in so many ways, parks are like this microcosm of so many of the dynamics of a place. You've said in your own neighborhood, you have a public area, a green space, mm. but it's boring. <laughs> How is it boring? Well, you know, we we have some lovely green spaces, but there's also these, what I would call like a scrap green space. This happens because a developer needs to have a certain amount of green space in a neighborhood. And so they say, well, this little piece of scrap can be our green space. So it might be grass, but it's very exposed. It can be on a hill. It can feel very uncomfortable to be sitting on that space. You just wouldn't use it. You know, human beings like to feel kind of nestled. So having, you know, sort of trees and bushes and gardens and and also places to sit is really important for, you know, a certain type of green space. So where do you see parks being well done in America as you've looked at different communities that seem to really get this and do it right? Um, So Minneapolis is just an hour north of where I grew up. They have an incredible park system, often rated the best in the country, with walking and biking trails along the Mississippi River and numerous lakes. Actually, 97% of the residents in Minneapolis live within a 10-minute walk of a park. You know, there's also incredible park systems in large cities like St. Paul, Minnesota, and Portland, Chicago, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Boston, Cincinnati, and even New York City has um, incredible parks even beyond Central Park. What do you think it takes in a community to ensure that we do this? Is it people who've lived elsewhere, seen it, and decide to recreate it in their own hometowns? Well, you need to have strong leadership that understands the value of these spaces. Also, it's important to consider that different communities have different needs and preferences for their green spaces. 
you don't just take one model of a park and put it everywhere. And having a variety of parks with a variety of purposes from you know, smaller playgrounds or areas with seating that are more for sociability, you know, plazas, et cetera, uh, versus spaces that are larger, green spaces that are less developed, maybe on the um, kind of outskirts of the city uh, with accessible trails and bike paths to access them and, and different types of parks in between as well. What do you think about water features? Well, lots of the research in ecotherapy talks about our innate connection to water because it was required for our survival. So uh, water features are incredibly uh, mentally restorative for human beings. If you just observe, you see children playing, you know, in fountains and people being drawn to water um, for fishing or just putting their feet off the edge of the dock or playing on the beaches, people are drawn to water and it has a very significant positive psychological impact on human beings. What have you learned about the actual physical response our bodies have to being in nature that is conducive to beauty and rest and exhilaration? There is uh, an enormous body of scholarly literature that supports time spent in and engaging with nature has innumerable benefits. Simply people being outside, you know, not speeding by in their cars and seeing each other. This has all these social benefits. Green space reduces rates of crime and violence in communities. We have this cognitive response to time in and around nature. So when you're really concentrating on something, for me, it's like I'll, I'll be reading a paragraph and I have to read it over and over again. My mind has just hit a wall. That means that you have directed attention fatigue. And time spent looking at nature, just even if you have a plant by your desk space and looking at that plant, it can help restore your mind from that mental fatigue you know, there's improved productivity, academic performance and cognitive function proven by lots of research. Um, of course, the spiritual and tangible benefits of nature and green spaces. There's physiological changes in our body when we spend time in nature. So it lowers our blood pressure, our cortisol levels. It helps actually people heal faster and need less medication when they have a view of nature from their hospital room. Research has shown this. Mm. And, you know, there's innumerable psychological benefits. Um, so uh, a huge body of research showing, you know, increased self-esteem, less feelings of anger or stress, anxiety, and improved mood. Um, and it really doesn't take much. This is what's incredible to me. So I think one of the most important theories about why nature has the impact on us that it does is the biophilia hypothesis coined by E.O. Wilson in the early 80s, said that because we evolved in nature, it makes us feel comfortable and protected and content and secure and happy to be in natural spaces. So we have this urge that says that we need to be in nature. We were directly in contact with nature for the vast majority of our evolution as human beings. And this has changed so much recently. You know, our children spend so much of their lives in the four walls of a classroom at school. Could you imagine, even in urban schools in large cities, trying to reconfigure how we do schooling so that so much more of it could be outdoors or in nature? Yes. And this topic is very near and dear to my heart because I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. The schools here, um, children have 30 minutes a day outside. It's not enough. They need more time. Time in nature is very important for their social emotional development, their cognitive development, their creativity, their imagination, you know, the movement of children in outdoor spaces. Mm -hmm. People move more when they're outdoors. If you want to be more physically active, all you have to do is take your body and put it outside. And research shows you are going to move more. Um, and, and, and it really troubles me that we are taking this out of the curriculum where 
there are four schools in, you know, in Finland, for example, where, where, where kids are outside all day long, rain or shine, and they are thriving in this environment. You know, they're thriving it. <laughs> Simply putting plants in a classroom and having children tend to those plants. You know, trying to make sure that classrooms have windows, that students actually have a view of the window and greenery outside of those windows, planting more things outdoors, letting children spend more time outdoors, having instructional time outdoors, having lunch breaks outdoors. And this is true for adults as well. Uh, you know, all the research is showing that even if you're doing something else, if you're doing it outdoors and particularly in a space that's green and feels protected, you will receive mental health benefits, whether you realize it or not. Are there some ways that we can do this, that we can benefit from nature, even if we don't live near wonderful parks or open areas? Yes, definitely. Just looking at images of nature lowers your blood pressure your cortisol levels, and reduces stress and anxiety. So you can simply hang some nature photos or tapestries or posters in your workspace, in your home, somewhere where you can see them when you're working. Situate a few plants around you when you study or work. This helps you concentrate. It makes you feel more optimistic and energetic. Uh, for an extra boost, you know, name it. Seriously, talk to it, you know, touch it once in a while, you know, engage your senses with that. The more you can consciously engage with the nature around you, however tiny, the more mental benefits you're going to receive from it. Um, if possible, face your desk to a window to capture some natural light, you know, a little breeze, get a glimpse of the sky and the green. Um, you could get some essential oils. Rosemary, lavender, and pine scents can improve your mood, help you relax. Uh, peppermint and citrus help you stay focused and energized. You can put it in a diffuser or put it directly on your wrists, under your nose, so you can smell it. Um, collect and surround yourself with natural items. This could be stones or bits of driftwood or shells. Uh, it could be a wildflower along the road, you know, whatever you're drawn to and come across. And this has the added benefit of having you be kind of attentive when you're out in the natural world. But really, even a single dandelion in a tiny vase can bring so much joy. Um, if you're really brave, you know, you really want to get a benefit, take off your shoes and feel some grass or some moss <laughs> or a rock under your feet you know, and really feel it. Feel the bottoms of your feet as it touches the natural world. Uh, and, and you know, I'd say, then really notice how, you know, all these different ways, notice how it impacts you, how it improves your state of mind in your life, and then help other people do this as well. Um, and, you know, a final piece that's very important is as you're noticing this and building this relationship with nature, um, do something, or a lot of things, if you can, to help preserve and conserve the natural world. Um, you know, all these things are very simple, very affordable or free, and they really have the power to truly transform every tiny little moment of your life. Dorothy Ebus, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Dorothy Ebus is a professor of environmental science and policy at William & Mary and the director of William & Mary's Parks Research Lab. Everything changed in the 1950s. After city planners across America ranked neighborhoods A through F, the Federal Highway Act of 1956 authorized bulldozers through homes to make way for highways basically erasing the neighborhoods that got bad ratings. 30 years later, a lot of those lower-rated neighborhoods are hotter than other parts of town because there's no tree canopy, just asphalt. Pamela Groth is a professor of environmental science at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. She says planting trees is one great way to cool things down. You and one of your students, Allison Grant, recently began looking into whether this redlining, prejudiced housing policies, 
have created hot zones for poor people in five Virginia cities. What'd you notice? So we we already knew that these historically redlined neighborhoods are much hotter than these so-called desirable or richer neighborhoods. So we really wanted to see if those redline neighborhoods have always been hotter as far back as the data that we could go from the 1980s and the 1990s all the way to today. I honestly, I think it was kind of surprising that they were hotter in the 80s, they were hotter in the 90s, just as much as they're hotter today. You know, we know this is an issue, but it's been an issue for the last 20 to 30 years and probably even longer. We just don't have the data to look at it, but nothing has been done about it. What do you think might make a difference? The Honestly, the, the best thing is the tree planting. More green space, definitely. So just anything to, to increase the total greenery space and reduce the pavements and the hard surfaces. But it, it's got to be targeted, not just, you know, planting trees in the richer people's neighborhoods. It's about targeting these tree planting efforts in these lower income communities. Like within a city block, almost 50% of that city block should be shaded with trees to help reduce the extra warming that cities create because of all these hard surfaces. That's exciting, this idea that we could have an army of landscape architects come together and start really beautiful landscaping, treescaping in these areas. Right. There's there's so much more benefit to you know, increasing the green space and increasing the the trees in our cities and our communities. And it reduces runoff. But also by reducing the runoff, we can increase the water capacity within our cities, which is also a natural cooling effect. And trees themselves, beyond actually just providing us with the shade and reducing the, you know, the sun's energy and rays coming down on us, can cool the air through what we call evapotranspiration. That's where the trees breathe this water, and that also can naturally cool the area around them. Can you think of any areas where you've seen this kind of asphalt, deserty area and have longed for trees? It really makes me open my eyes as I'm driving around, just realizing that even some of the lower income neighborhoods in my own city, I can just visibly see the impact that there's more asphalt and pavements and they don't have the big, large, beautiful trees that uh, the rich and the more historic neighborhoods have in my town. So it's just something that I'm more aware of as, as I'm driving through my own city. I think Richmond, Virginia is doing a really good job in this already. They have this community plan built on climate resilience. And one of the pillars is looking at the extreme urban heat and health. And they're doing it through this equity focused lens where they're specifically targeting the most marginalized communities. And I think that's where we need to be and where we all need to go. As you've been looking at the heat disparities, what have you been thinking the ideal urban neighborhood might look like, let's say, 20, 30 years from now? I could just envision such mixed-use living all within the same community with little pocket parks that are scattered throughout their community where it's all uh, tree-lined and and tree-covered and very walkable with sidewalks and biking trails and with a focus on like a livable city where everything can either be accessed by walking or by bike or uh, with very good public transportation, for example. Your town, Fredericksburg, Virginia, is a fascinating place because like so many cities, the downtown area is historic and beautiful, tree-lined and filled with old homes, hugely walkable. Mm -hmm. But then the long Route 3 highway leading up to the city is littered with box stores and strip malls and parking lots. It's the best and the worst at the same time, right? Yes. And the low-income communities, the two that I can think of, are also located on the outskirts. 
which I find kind of interesting. I think these are communities that have been around as well for a while. Like they're just, you know, historically communities that have been low income and still are low income. So you mean they don't have access to that beauty, walkability, go from home to the store? Exactly. And that the the city trying to incorporate mixed income living hasn't been a focus at this point, it seems. How important is social environmental justice when it comes to climate change and the lived experience of people in cities? This is incredibly important. This is such an environmental justice issue 100% related to climate change. And our focus really needs to be on equitable solutions. We really need to focus on the communities that are most impacted. You know, where are the hottest parts of these cities? And how do they actually correlate with the sociodemographic indicators? And that's where our focus really needs to be. The people who are most vulnerable to these extreme heat are also people who have underlying health conditions that make adapting to the extreme heat even more challenging. So it's a it's a health issue as well. And, and it's all correlated because part of the reason that there are more underlying health conditions in these more marginalized communities is a good bit due to the air pollution from the highway traffic that's going through those neighborhoods that increases the rates of asthma, which makes dealing with extreme heat much harder. Well, Pamela Growth, thank you so much for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. And anytime that we can bring awareness to like such a critical issue, um, we need to do so. Pamela Groth is a professor of environmental science at the University of Mary Washington. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>